Father, we just come humbly to your word today as we look at this very, very severe warning that you've placed here by your spirit through the author of Hebrews in your word. And Lord, a very serious warning, uh, uh, one that we should all pay heed to. Lord, as we're going to see at the end of the passage, it, it doesn't apply to most of us, but, but there is application for all of us. So, so Lord, I ask today that uh, you just show us, uh, first of all, just if there's someone here who's a pretender, Lord, that really doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord, uh, this, this passage makes it real clear uh, uh, about the consequences of of not truly putting your faith in Christ. So, so Lord, if, if there's any doubts here today, we're not here to create doubts, but if there are any doubts here, Lord, we ask today that, that today be the day that a person makes a, that's doubting makes the, the, the plunge, Lord, all the way into to your grace, into, into the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, Lord. There's only one way to be saved. We know that, and that's through through the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, just, just help us as we go through this uh, lesson today uh, and, and help us to glean what you would have us to glean. We ask that uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. I remember when Eli was a little boy, he wanted to be Batman. He's looking down. He said, he what is my dad doing here today? He wanted to be Batman really bad, so we bought him a little Batman outfit. And what I remember about that outfit, I'll never, never forget it, was the warning label that they put on the box. Let me, let me read it to you. It says, parents, please exercise caution for play only. Mask and cape are not really protective armor, and the cape does not enable anyone to fly. Now, I was so glad that they told us that because we just felt as soon as Eli put that thing on, he was going to be flying across the room and... We wanted that armor to be good in case he fell, but, but uh, you know, only an idiot would, <laughs> would need a warning like, label like that. Uh, uh, to, uh, only an idiot would take that seriously. But there are warning labels uh, just like that one on that Batman uniform. Um, uh, but there are some warning labels that we had better take very seriously. They're a matter of life and death. I mean, yeah, I've seen one, I mean, look at the warning label on cigarettes. Cigarettes causes cancer. That's a matter of life and death. I, I think everybody knows that now, so, the, so uh, uh, I don't know if that label is necessary, but, but it certainly, it certainly is, 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 uh, makes the point. Uh, cleaning, if you look at certain cleaning fluids, there's there's warning labels on the back of those cleaning fluids that say that if you mix this chemical with another cleaning fluid, then it would uh, create a gas that can cause death. So you, you, you want to look at those warning labels when you're using cleaning fluids. Uh, medicine labels. I mean, you look at certain medicine labels. Uh, uh, medicine labels that say don't mix this medicine with alcohol because it can, can cause death or, or serious illness. I remember... Years ago, back in the 80s, uh, uh, when I was living in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, there was a very prominent realtor there. Uh, actually, he was a friend of mine. I had some dealings with him. And he got rip-roaring drunk one night, really bad. The guy had a drinking problem, and, and uh, he was drunk most of the time. But he got really bad drunk one night, and he decided to, to, to cure it with Tylenol. And so he took, over, during the night, he took several... Uh, 
capsules of Tylenol, and, and he got up the next morning, and he was sicker than ever, and he went to the hospital, and they told him to get his affairs in order because he had Tylenol poisoning, and he had less than 48 hours to live. And sure enough, I mean, he died within a couple of days from, from Tylenol poisoning. So, so certainly we want to look at labels like that. Uh, there's, 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 there's labels that we need to look at that are, that are a matter of life and death. But I think the most serious warning labels or the most important warning labels that we had better pay heed to are the warning labels that we find in the Bible. And especially here in the book of Hebrews. There are five such warning labels in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to look at, I think, the scariest of them all today uh, as we come to, to verse uh, 26 of uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews. So, so let's go there uh, now and and uh, hang on with me. This is going to be a tough one. So let's look at this warning label that he gives us here in, in uh, chapter number 10. Pick up with me in verse number 26. Listen to this now. This is kind of scary. He says, but if we sin willfully, hang on, after we've received the knowledge of the truth. What's the knowledge of the truth? Well, the knowledge of the truth is what he's been teaching us in the first 10 chapters of this book. It's the knowledge of the real gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's only by grace, only by the blood that we can be perfected. It's only by grace and only by blood that we have access to God. It's only by grace and only by the blood that we'll ever make it to heaven. So if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of that truth, watch this now, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Is that not scary? If you sin willfully after you've received the knowledge of truth. Now, if you're here today, you just received the knowledge of truth. So if you sin willfully after you receive the knowledge of truth, there is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Man, I don't know about you, but that, Let's go somewhere else. You order to do a psalm or something? <laughs> now let's go on. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. What's he speaking of right there? Fiery indignation. He's talking about hell. Don't tell me the Bible doesn't teach that there's a hell and that there's a judgment, an eternal judgment. It's right here in this text which will devour the adversaries of God. Let me read that one more time. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain, for sure, 100% sure, fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries, and I'll add of God. Now, Here's basically what's happened to us in our study of Hebrews. We've been shown the product in the first 10 chapters. And what a great product it is. I mean, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you can be saved by grace, that you can be perfected forever by grace, that you have total access to God through grace. And we've been given the product. And, and again, what a great product it is. And, but now what he does, he gives us the warning label. And what's the warning label? The warning label is if, if, 
we sin willfully, after we've received this truth, then there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. Now, if you have no sacrifice for sins, then where are you going to end up? You're going to end up in hell. And so, I mean, I don't know if there's a more uh, serious warning label in, in the world than that warning label right there because it's not a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. I don't see y'all smiling here right now. We're going to smile before this is over with, I hope. But, but it, it, it is some, some really scary stuff. Now, those people who preach what's known as the perfectionist gospel, let me tell you what that is before I tell you what they preach. They preach that once you're saved, you become perfect. And you're able to live a perfect life. Yeah, I laugh at that too. No, I won't even say that. I don't even want to pretend to do that. But they believe you can. And I believe you can, but you you can't. The possibility is there, but nobody does it. Okay? There's only one person who's ever done it, and that's Jesus Christ. I mean, and and I I think, again, as I've said before, what they do, they kind of lower the bar. They they say, well, you, you don't commit adultery, you don't murder somebody, you don't go to jail, well then you've, you're, you're living the perfect life. No, the Bible speaks of gossip as being a sin, of evil thoughts as being a sin, of, of looking at a woman with lust as being a sin, lying as being a sin, being angry with your brother without cause as being a sin. So I, nobody makes it and lives, makes it through life and lives a perfect life. But, but what they believe is that you can live the perfect life, and they come to this passage right here, and they say, see, if you sin willfully, if you, if you engage in a willful sin after you've received the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, so you better live the perfect life. Because if you don't live the perfect life, you're going to hell. And I've had these guys say, Pastor, what you're, you teach all of this grace, what you're, you're, what you're doing, you're leading a bunch of people to hell. And if you take that passage the way they take that passage, they would be exactly right. Because I tell you, you're free to do whatever you want. I tell you that all your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. I tell you that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. And that's exactly what the Bible says. I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm preaching what the Bible says. And I'm going to preach what the Bible says here today too, but, but you can see where they come up with that idea and, and how dangerous it is to sin after you've been saved. On the other hand, you have the people who believe you can lose your salvation, and they like this verse too because they say the same thing. If you sin willfully after you've received the gospel, then you lose your salvation. Now, here's where they have a problem with this passage. People who believe you can lose your salvation also believe you can get it back again. You can lose it, you can get it back, you can lose it, you can get it back, you can lose it, and you can get it back. That's not what this says. This says, for if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So if you use this passage, then what you're saying, if you lose your salvation, you can never get your salvation back. Now, Here's where they go wrong. When the perfectionist gospel camp or the lose your salvation camp is talking about willful sin, what are they talking about? They're talking about adultery or drug use or lying or idolatry or blasphemy or stealing or murder. 
the perfectionist gospel guy would say, if you engage in those sins after you've received the gospel, then you've lost all hope. There's no sacrifice remaining for your sins. Those sins you commit after that, hey, you were, you, you were given the grace and you were given the spirit where you could live the perfect life and you're not living the perfect life. And so there remains no sacrifice for your sins any longer. The guy who says the, the lose your salvation camp would say, hey, if you commit adultery or drug use or fall into, you start lying or commit, commit adultery or blasphemy or any of these sins, then you lose your salvation. Well, here's where they go wrong. When, what they're thinking of, when they're thinking of these, this sinning willfully, they're missing the whole point of the context of this text. I mean, if you've been here for 10 chapters, what is the author of Hebrew talking about when he talks about sinning willfully? What's he talking about? Let me give you a hint. What, what was the sin that destroyed the children of Israel in the wilderness? They caused them to stay in the wilderness for 40 years. And the author harped on that for a whole chapter. What was that sin that they committed that caused them to be destroyed in the wilderness. All but two of them, two million of them died in the wilderness. What was that sin? One word, what was that sin? Unbelief. Unbelief. See, that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. He's talking about the sin of unbelief, the sin of not fully trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation, for our sanctification, and for our glorification. We have to trust fully in him. And, 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 and what you have to remember is the context of the people who he was speaking to. Here, who was he talking to? He was talking to the Hebrews, and what was their problem? They were going back to the old covenant. I mean, they were mixing the old covenant with the new covenant. They were mis- mixing grace with law. They were mixing temple sacrifices with the sacrifice of the cross. And so they weren't fully resting and believing in Jesus Christ. And so what he does, he gives them these great truths. And in between, he intermingles these warnings. And he says, look, if you look back, if you go back under law, what you're doing, you're sinning willfully. You're sinning willfully and there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. Because if you reject the cross, the cross is the only sacrifice there is for sins. That's true for all of us. That's not just true for the Jews. If we're trying to add anything to the work of that cross, if we're trying to mix our works with the work of the cross for salvation and for our righteousness, then we're drawing back. And we're, and we're, and, and it's a really scary thing because if we sin willfully, knowingly, we do that. We rely on our religion or we rely on our works instead of relying on the work of the cross. Then there remains no sacrifice for sins. You're sinning willfully and you will perish eternally. You're, and look, look at what he says here. He says in the last part, which will devour the adversary. In other words, if you're still under law, if you're still trying to work for your salvation, you're still an adversary of God. Well, that's a scary place to be. You're still alienated from God. 
and you're still an enemy of God. If you're relying on your religion in any way or form or fashion for your salvation, then you're still an adversary of God. There are so many religions out there that are works-based, and all the, all the people that belong to those religions and adhere to their doctrine are still adversaries of God. And they will be devoured if at some point they don't repent and truly come to the cross where, that, where, where we receive salvation. Now that's, man, I don't know if it gets any scarier than that. I, I, I would say be willing to bet. And I, I don't, I'm not looking at anybody here and thinking it's you. But I'll be willing to bet you that there are still people in this room who are pretenders. Who, who are hearing the gospel, but they've never really put their faith totally in the cross. They still think that somehow you've got to please the Lord by keeping the law. Or you've got to go to church or read your Bible a certain amount or pray a certain amount. Somehow you've got to do something in order to be perfected. And whenever you're doing that, we're going to see here in a minute, you're trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ. And that makes you an adversary of God. Hopefully there's nobody here in that position. And that's why Paul injects these warnings here. He was, he was primarily writing to believers. But whenever you speak to believers, there's some pretenders there. There's, there's some lost people, and there's some people who are pretending to be saved who are still lost. And so you've got to have these warnings intermingled in with the good news. I mean, the book of Hebrews is a book about good news. But intermingled in, the, in, in this book are five very serious warnings. And, 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 you know, I would be a mess. I mean, I would love to skip a text like this. this you don't teach this. You won't hear this in a church where you, where you teach topically. You won't hear this in any church that doesn't teach verse by verse through the Bible. That no pastor is going to go pick this text out. But I had to pick it out. God made me pick it out because it was the next verse in line. And there's somebody here, I feel, that needs to hear this. That, that you're still, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm almost begging you to, to look at this and say, to, not to, I don't want to raise doubts for those of you that are truly born again. But you do need to ask yourself, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting fully in the grace of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in your religion? Are you trusting in your pastor? Are you trusting in your good works? Are you trusting in, in the country you belong to or whatever? If you're trusting in anything else other than Jesus Christ, you're in danger. And so that's why this warning label is here in this text. It gets, it gets even scarier as we go on. Look at what he says next. He says in verse number 28, he says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now let me ask you something. Who gave Moses Moses' law? God gave Moses Moses' law. Moses didn't just dream that thing up. It was given to him by angels. It was given through the hands of angels by God himself. The Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. And so here's, here's the comparison he's making. If God is that serious 
about Mo, the Mosaic law, how much more serious do you think he is about the new covenant where his son died on a cross? He says, if anyone who has received Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You know what, an interesting thing? If you go back and read the Old Testament. I mean, a guy was picking up sticks on Saturday. And you know what they did? They stoned him. You know who told him to stone him? God. If a kid sassed his mama, you know what they did with him? If, on two, two or three witnesses? They stoned him or her. They were stoned. Commit adultery? You were stoned. You can't commit homosexuality? Under God's law? You were stoned. You know what's interesting? When we go in the millennium, I won't be under law. I'll be glorified. The law is written on my mind and on my heart. And I will live out a perfectionist gospel then because I will have a perfect glorified body. And my flesh won't war with my spirit and my spirit with my flesh anymore. I'll be at peace in that body. But there are going to be a lot of people left here on this earth. And they're not going to be born again. And they're not going to live by the spirit. What, how's God going to rule and reign on this earth? By his law. By his law. His law is good. It's made for good, for the good of mankind. But I'll tell you, what do you want me kids sassing their moms and dad with anybody around? Because if you've got two or three witnesses, you're going down. I mean, you, you die. You know, the Bible speaks of Jesus ruling with a rod of iron. That's his law. He's going to rule with his law. Y'all can smile at that. That's going to be a, let me tell you what, if the law of Jesus Christ was enforced in this land right now, we would have a wonderful country to live in. So it's going to be wonderful. It's not going to be bad. It's going to be great. But the violators of that law won't hang around here long. They're going to be gone. You don't like his law. Well, tough. You're out of here. And guess what? You're going to be the judge. You'll be ruling and reigning and judging over that law on this earth with mercy and grace. I mean, that's going to be an interesting time. But anyone who has received Moses' law dies. God's serious about Moses' law. If God was so serious about punishing those who violated the Mosaic law, look at the next verse, of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified is a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? If God is so serious about adultery and, and children obeying their parents, and stealing and lying and murdering, how much more serious do you think he is about the blood of his son, Jesus Christ? See, you go back to verse 26. What's it mean to sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth? Let me tell you what it means. It means trampling underfoot the son of God, taking his blood lightly. And really, in essence, you're trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ. It's as if you walk over the blood of God. You just walk over it, step over it, as if it's just a common thing on the ground. 
you understand the seriousness of trying to add anything to what Christ has done for us? Do you understand how seriously God takes that offense? And I mean, there is a world of religion out there that is trampling under the blood, under, underfoot Jesus Christ and trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ and saying, no, we don't need the blood. It's the blood plus this. I mean, there's so many churches now that won't even speak of the blood. And if God takes his Mosaic law seriously, how much more seriously do you think he takes it when we trample on the blood of Jesus Christ and insult the spirit of grace? What does it mean to insult the spirit of grace? Well, if I were to buy you the finest automobile on this earth, and I were to bring it to you and you were to tell me, you know what, I really don't want that automobile. I can do just fine without it. I have a bicycle, and I can ride my bicycle to the grocery store, and I can travel on my bicycle, and I can go anywhere I want on my bicycle. I really don't need that fine automobile. What would I do? What would I do? I wouldn't hit the guy or do anything like that. I'd just say, fine, keep your bicycle, and I'll keep my automobile. Do you understand what God says to you when you say, look, I really don't need the blood I really can do this on my own. I can make it to heaven through my good works. I can make it through heaven by belonging to a certain church. I can make it through heaven through my religion. I really don't need the blood. What does God do? Well, he takes the blood away. And, and that's why he says there, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins because the only sacrifice for your sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you insult the spirit of grace and you try to add to the work of the cross, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins because you've trampled on the blood of Jesus Christ. That's scary stuff, isn't it? He doesn't really mean that, though, does he? I'm afraid he does. Well, it gets better now, verse 30. <laughs> Not really. He says, for we... Know him who said, we know the God, the Lord who said, Jehovah, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy chapter 32, where Moses warns the Israelites, he tells the Israelites that if you go back to idolatry, if you go back to idolatry, you're going to be destroyed if you go worshiping idols, if you turn me into an idol, you are going to be destroyed. You turn God into an idol, and you're going to be destroyed. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I know my people. I know who really worship me in spirit and in truth. That's what he's saying right there. I mean, there are so many people who call themselves Christians who are really worshiping an idol. They've created a Jehovah God of their own. He's not the Jehovah God of the Bible. I mean, the Jehovah God who says there's no hell, that's not Jehovah God. The Old Testament God, the New Testament God who's different from the Old Testament God, that's not Jehovah God. That's not Jesus, because Jesus is Jehovah. The universalist God who says everybody's going to heaven, that, that's, that's idolatry. The, 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 the God who says, hey, whatever society says is okay, is okay. You don't have to worry about my word. My word's not truth. That's an idol. And vengeance 
is mine, says the Lord. You turn to an idol or you make me an idol, you're going to be destroyed. And I know my people. I know those who worship me in spirit and in truth. I know who they are. He knows every heart in this room today. He knows exactly where you stand. And he knows if you're relying on his son's blood or on the blood of Christ or if you're relying on something else. He knows if you've got some kind of religion, let me warn you. I'll tell you right now, if you've got some kind of religion that circumvents the word of God, you're in deep, deep trouble. Because you are worshiping a God who you've created in your own mind. The God reveals himself in these 66 books of this Bible. And that's why it's so important for us to, to have the mind of Christ to know this word. Because it's through the word that we come into a relationship with the Lord. It's through the word that we saw last week that we're sanctified. And so if we create all, I hear all of these different religions doing all of these different things, and, and it's scary. Well, it gets better in verse 31. Not really. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You know the most wonderful thing that happened to you? Is to fall into the arms of a loving God. The true and living God. But if you reject the true and living God and the way, the truth and the life, the only way, the truth and the life, then you're going to fall into the hands of an angry God. An angry God who is going to devour his adversary. He's not joking about that. He's going to devour those who are alienated from them, those who are enemies of his. He's serious about that. Now, here was the problem, and here's the problem with so many people that are in religion. They're sincere, they're, but they're sincerely wrong. I mean, the Hebrews were sincere. They thought mixing the old covenant, which God had given them, with the new covenant was okay. And they were hanging out with Christians, and they wanted to be a Christian, and they still wanted to be part of the old covenant. It's like, well, I don't want to use that example. I don't want to offend anybody. But it, it's like going back to a religion you know is false and hanging on to that religion and trying to be in the right religion too. You can't do that. You can't do that. You've got to move out of that. And, and what happens, if, if, if you're trying to hang on to your old religion and come into the right religion, you know, you're going to be persecuted by the old religion. Let the thing go. Let it go. See, what the Hebrews were doing, they were hanging out with Christians. And they were being persecuted for their faith by the Jews they were trying to hang out with too. And so Paul says, Paul says to him, he says, but recall, he says, recall the former days which after you were illuminated, after you, by the Spirit of God, you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You endured a great struggle with suffering. You suffered for the gospel. Partly while you were, you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became a companions of those who were so treated. You hung out with Christians, and that's a dangerous thing to do. It cost you something. Hey, you hang out with real Christians, it's going to cost you something. Somewhere in your life, I mean, in America so far, we've been pretty protected from that, but we, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, we're heading down that direction where if you're a Christian, a real Christian, evangelical, I even hate that word, a real Christian, if you're a real Christian, it's going to cost you something. And hey, if you're not a real Christian and you're pretending to be a real Christian, you might want to find another church because it will be a lot easier on you. Or hey, find different people to hang out with because they're going to, real Christians are going to face some tribulations, I believe, coming here soon. 
And so Paul, Paul's saying, to, the author's saying here, who I believe it's Paul, he's saying here that, that uh, man, you guys are suffering. Why? You don't want to be suffering for nothing. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege to eat dinner with one of Brenda's co-workers, a really nice guy. And then he began to tell us a story about his son. I think he has an architecture degree or something like that from BYU. Really, really smart guy. And he's given up all his goods, everything he has, to go on the mission field for two years. And, and I wanted to, for the mission field in the Far East, way out in the middle of nowhere. He's going to do that, give, give, give up everything in his life for two years to serve on that mission field. And I, I wanted to just cry out to the guy, man, he's wasted his time. Don't you see that? I, I mean, he's suffering for nothing. Don't you see that? And, and there's so many people in religion that suffer for nothing. That's what Paul's, the author is saying, right? He said, record the former days after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. I mean, you lost things over this, knowing that you had a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. Now, that missionary that goes to, to, to the Far East on a Mormon mission trip, he's doing that. He's giving up those goods because of the promise he has in heaven. Mormons believe that one day you'll, you'll rule your own planet. And you have as many wives as you want. And, and, and that's the promise. And, but Paul's saying here, the promise is real. I mean, hey, you're suffering for the right cause, but you're not there yet. You haven't really received Christ. I, again, I do believe Paul wrote this book. I've said it before. In verse 34, the first part there, he says, For you had compassion on me and my chains. By the way, if you go to the end of the book of Hebrews, he says, Timothy has been released, and I'm sending him to you. Now, who was in chains with Timothy? Man, that narrows it down to just a very few people. Paul, maybe Luke. Uh, that's about it. Maybe Epaphroditus. But man, this book sure reads like Paul to me. So I believe, at the very least, that Paul wrote it or, or started writing it and Luke finished it, something along, some, something along those lines. But, but uh, I, I just got to believe Paul wrote it. But anyway, he goes on. He says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. Now watch this. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now, is he saying here that if you endure and do the will of God, you'll get saved? Is that what he's saying? No. What he's saying here, if you're saved, you're going to endure, and you're going to do the will of God. Those who are saved will endure, and they will do the will of God. Look, at some point in your Christian walk, if you walk away from the Christian faith and you don't endure, you never had the Christian faith. You're going to endure, and you're going to do the will of God. Well, no, God won't make me do his will. Man, you, you must, again, you serve a different God than the God I serve. 
You're going to do the will of God. One way or the other, if you're a Christian, you're going to do the will of God. He has ways of keeping his children in line. Sometimes they're not very pleasant ways, but we won't get into that because we're looking at enough unpleasant stuff today. But, but uh, you don't endure to get saved. You don't do the will of God to get saved. But that's a sign that you are saved. If you're sitting here today, you want to figure out whether you're a pretender or a real Christian. If you're a real Christian, you're enduring in the faith. If you're a real Christian, you're in the will of God. Now, sometimes you can get out of the will of God. That certainly can happen to a real Christian. But you're going to get back in the will of God. You're going to finish the race doing the will of God, and you're going to finish. You're going to endure. And, and, and receive the promise. Here's where the good news comes. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will not tarry. Now, he said a little while back in the very first century before the temple was destroyed. In a little while, Paul, or the author of Hebrews, whoever he is, said, He's coming in just a little bit. What do you mean by that? That meant that he could come at any moment. If he could come at any moment, back in 60 AD, man, don't you think that moment is pressing on us pretty close right now? Don't you think that he really could come at any moment? Right here while I'm talking, he could come and, and spare you the rest of this sermon? <laughs> if you get left here, though, you really need to look at this passage closely. And when he comes, he doesn't tarry. You read the book of Revelation when things start happening. And I believe we're getting really close. When they start happening, they're going to happen really fast. And he's not going to tarry and he's going to come to receive his bride. That's you and me. And then in verse number 38, he says, Now the just shall live by faith. That's the key. You got that? The just. Who are the just? Those who believe in Jesus Christ and are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can be made just. You're the just, you, you get saved by faith and the just shall live by faith. How do I endure? How do I do the will of God in my life? I live by faith. Faith in myself? No. Faith in the, my religion? No. By faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. By faith in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how I live my life, my Christian life. Now, that's another reason I believe that Paul wrote this book. Paul quite often either quoted or paraphrase from that verse in Habakkuk where Habakkuk says, where God said to Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. We see it over and over again in Galatians and in Romans. The just shall live by faith. In Galatians, uh, Paul says, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, you remember the question in chapter 3, he says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or did you receive it by faith? Y'all answer that. How did you receive the Spirit of God? By faith. Then he goes on to say, he, he says, he, having begun in the Spirit by faith, 
Why are you now trying to make yourself perfect through your works? No, no, may it never be. The just shall live by faith. You receive Christ by faith and you live by faith. Paul says the same thing, he paraphrases that in a different way, over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, as you have received Christ, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ? By faith. How do you walk in Christ? By faith. By faith in what? By faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. By faith in the power of the blood. That's how you receive Christ, and that's how you walk in Christ. That's how you do the will of God. That's how you endure to the end. You don't endure to the, in, in, to the end in your own strength. You endure to the end and do, doing the will of God in the strength of Jesus Christ by faith. And he says, but if anyone draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. What's it mean to draw back? That would mean, mean that you try to endure and do the will of God by your own efforts instead of living by faith. And so many Christians fall into that trap. You rely on your own efforts or your religion. And what are you doing when you're doing that? You're trampling underfoot the Son of God. You're making it out to be the blood of Christ to be a common thing. And so you're trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ. And my soul, the Lord says, will have no pleasure and someone who does that. You know what pleases God? Do you know what pleases God in your life more than anything else? Is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your faith in Jesus Christ. Your trust in Jesus Christ. More than anything else, that's what pleases him. You could pastor the largest church in the world and be doing it in your own strength and that would not be pleasing to God. You could raise the most moral family who, that ever lived and if you did that in your own strength, that would not be pleasing to God. But when you live your life, when you raise your family, when you go to your job, when you do your ministry by faith in nothing but Jesus Christ, you are pleasing to God. Don't you want to be pleasing to God? Man, I want to be pleasing to God. And if we don't do it that way, God has no pleasure in us. Well, let's end on a good note. The last verse. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. How do you believe to the saving of the soul? You put everything, every bit of your faith in who? In Jesus Christ. We're, we're not of those who draw back. Those who draw back, those who don't endure, never have had their soul saved. Do you see that? Don't say they lost their salvation. They never have had their soul saved. Who's the we speaking of right here? Those who endure. Those who don't draw back. But who are those who endure? Those who believe to the saving of the soul. When you've really been saved and you've really been born again, 
I got some great news for you. You're going to endure. And you're going to endure doing the will of God. And you're going to be very pleasing to God. Because God is not pleased in any work you do. He's pleased in the work of his son and the work that his son does through you. The largest convent in San Diego has a sign on the fence outside that reads, I absolutely know trespassing. Violators will be persecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And then it's signed the Sisters of Mercy. (laughs) That's a pretty severe warning label coming from the Sisters of Mercy, isn't it? But isn't that what today's text is? It's a severe warning label coming from the God of mercy. Coming to you and all of us in love, not not in hate. I mean, the Bible's a book of mercy. The Hebrews is a book of mercy. But man, Hebrews has the most severe warning labels you could possibly read. Scary stuff. I I mean, Hebrews tells us over and over again that those who don't do what this book says will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And you will face a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour you forever. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But that's not who we are. You and I are the we here. We've been, we believed into the saving of our souls. And we can rest in Jesus Christ. And we can be sure that, hey, we're going to make it to the end. God's not going to unborn anybody. You've been born again, you know it. You're going to make it to the end. You're going to endure. It's going to be tough at times, and great at times, but you're going to endure. So what do we do with this passage? You know, I think Paul says it perfectly over in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, let your speech always be with grace, but what? Seasoned with salt. That's what the author of Hebrews has done here. The book is a book of grace. It's a book of mercy. It's about about leading us into the very presence of God, drawing us near to God, into his presence, into a great relationship with God. But he seasons it with a lot of salt. Those warnings that if you neglect so great a salvation, that if you trample underfoot the Son of God, that if you take his blood as a common thing, then you're going to be punished. And when we're witnessing to people, we can't back off the reality of hell. We don't preach hell. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We preach grace, but we season it with salt. But you know what else? What's terrible news for those who reject Christ is great news for us. I mean... 
his warning, what he's saying in his warning is that you can't rely on anything for your righteousness but Jesus Christ. You know what I say to that? Amen. And that's wonderful news for those who believe. It sets me free from striving to be righteous. It sets me free from rituals and law. It sets me free from religion. It sets me free from damnation. It sets me free to embrace and celebrate grace and not insult it. And it sets me free to enter the very presence of God and worship him and live with him forever. As I've said on several occasions, you can't get a better deal than that. We got a good deal. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you. We're, that warning really wasn't directed at most of us. Maybe not any of us. Hopefully not any of us. Lord, hopefully we've all come to a place where we realize that our salvation, our sanctification, everything that we do that pleases you is done through Jesus Christ. Not only were we saved by faith, we live by faith, Lord, in our Savior who gave himself for us and still gives himself for us. Lord, I know you can do a great work for, through those who, who can truly learn this lesson and learn to rely on you for, for all their strength, all their courage, all their ministry all that you would have them to do in this life. Lord, I just ask that if there's anyone here today who hasn't come to a place where they've drawn the line and stepped over and said once and for all, I've finalized this deal with you. I trust fully in Jesus Christ. If there's anyone who hasn't done that, let today be the day of their salvation, Lord. Let them receive Jesus Christ in their hearts right now. Put away all their religion, all their good works. And just receive that grace and mercy that you have for them through his blood. Lord, I just ask that again, if anyone's here in that position, you just touch them in a special way today. Father, we just thank you for the work you're doing through your spirit in our church and in our lives. And, and most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.